Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by, doing, by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome by, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's word. So the most consequential follower of Jesus is a man named Paul, and he writes this letter to the most consequential city of the world during his time, and he knows that if he can help uh, the people and the church and the city of Rome understand why, really grasp why Jesus matters for their lives, that, that message and that good news will disseminate everywhere to the rest of the known world. And so every argument he constructs, every sentence he writes, every word he chooses is carefully shaped and crafted. And so each Sunday, we've been taking a hard look at each one of these uh, carefully shaped and crafted words. And we're calling uh, this series uh, Big Words for Living. We're taking a, a really big word, which the book of Romans is full of, very dense, very big words. We're trying to take one big word, kind of break it down, simplify it, illustrate it, for living and how we live our lives. And so these words break down into a few categories. We've looked at scary words. We've looked at uh, liberating words. And in the next four weeks, we're gonna look at clarifying words to help us kind of figure out, get into the details of how to live in response to this liberty, this freedom that God has given us in Jesus Christ. And so today's big word is love. Uh, Paul clarifies what it looks like for you and me to realistically love as Jesus loved us. And I say realistically because even the most passionate, on-fire people for Jesus must grow and mature in love. As such, there are, there are levels, there are degrees of love, which are actually reflected here in Paul's teaching to this young church. A kind of uh, love 1.0, love 2.0, Love 3.0. You got the beta version, you got the 2.0 version, you got the 3.0 version. And Paul's saying if you decided to love, uh, if you decided to trust your life to Jesus and, and follow him, don't pressure yourself to have to love exactly like him right away. Don't, don't condemn yourself when you feel it's okay to hang back in addition before advancing to calculus, right? I still haven't advanced to calculus, but uh, so I know that well. Each of us has, has to grow through these levels of love. So be patient with yourself. And that's what makes Paul's teaching so realistic 
and practical. So as we look at these levels of love this morning, I want you to consider what, where you're currently at in terms of your love. And it's totally okay, by the way, to, to have love at the highest levels, but to currently find yourself back at the basics once again. That's okay. So let's talk about this together. First, love 1.0. And love 1.0 is a test. It's a test to see whether uh, my love is genuine. A test to see whether my love is genuine. So Paul begins in this passage by imploring this church to let our love be genuine. Paul, Paul writes his letters. You may or may not know this. He wrote his letters in the language of Greek. And the Greek word he used to, to, to sort of talk about what our love should be is anopakritos. Anopakritos. And if half that word sounds familiar, kritos, that's because it is. Hippocrit. Hippocritos. Hippocrites. During Paul's time, the word was usually applied to an actor who played a part on a stage. All right, so when he's saying here, let your love be anu-hypocritical or non-hypocritical, Paul's acknowledging that we can act the part. We can, we can uh, act the part on stage of loving, pretend in a way to love without actually loving. And you may have experienced this in your own life. I certainly have. I've been texting and talking quite a bit to my friend Joe this past week and in the month of March. Uh, Joe and I have a long text chat going about basketball, uh, uh, specifically this time of year. Uh, we help each other out with these uh, college basketball picks for our, our pools. If you don't know, March Madness is a big time for college basketball, and you, you, you select these teams, and you often do it for competition, for a trophy, or for money, or whatever. His, so we, every year we talk about our, our, our teams that we choose, and his picks this year have been exceptionally good. And to be honest, I'm kind of jealous of them. I'm jealous, but he's also my friend. So earlier this week, I texted him because the, the tournament uh, is starting to, to is past its halfway point. I texted him this week. I said, hey, man, kudos to you. These may be the best picks you've ever selected. And you may not see what I did there. I encouraged him, but in such a way to not let him get on his high horse because we've been doing this for 20 years. So I said, hey, this is probably the best you've ever done. It's a backhanded encouragement, right? 20 years, this is probably the best you've ever done. In other words, I needed to test the genuineness of my encouraging words to him. Because even when you give someone an encouragement or you say something to him, sometimes there's that little bit of like, yeah, but don't get too arrogant. Don't get too prideful. Don't think too much of yourself. I need to test the genuineness of my love. I was playing the part of loving without it being a full, genuine, heartfelt love. I'm going to circle back to my example here. But I want to first connect this what Paul says about love, love be genuine to his second statement he makes in the same verse, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Because the main question I've been asking myself this week is what's the connection between good and evil and genuine love? Because this is the most important verse in this whole passage. It's what Paul, the main point of what he wants to state, what's the connection between evil and good and genuine love? So I think in, in trying to understand this, I want to, I want to illustrate the connection uh, with a little story here. Now, I'm, I'm a puzzle-neutral person, puzzle-neutral, but, but Katie, my sister, my sister-in-law are very pro-puzzles, all right? Every time our families get together, usually in the summers, there's, there's usually a big 1,000-piece puzzle that's brought out to a table. 
And at random moments, interestingly, during the day, they'll start to work on it at first, but then they leave it. And at random moments during the day, you can catch someone uh, sort of stopping, standing over it, sometimes with a glass of wine or a margarita, I'll say that, and just sort sort of giving it some thought. And then they'll add a piece to the whole, and then they'll move on. We'll just move on, right? Now, sharing this phenomenon with a friend of mine, I said, hey, do you, when you get together with your families, like, like your wife's family, your family, do you like, does this happen? It's like, yes, the same thing. They had the puzzles and they sit over it and the puzzles doesn't get done until the end of the week at best. And he shared a little bit of a story with that. He said, we actually had this, I had this nephew who got kind of jealous and, he, and you know, he wanted his own uh, beautiful uh, puzzle portrait, you know, of a barn or a meadow with butterflies or whatever, you know, the puzzles often are, or like, you know, a snow with, with uh, horses, I don't know, whatever. So he was acting, the little boy was, like he was helping also. And so when, but when no one was looking, he would steal a piece of the puzzle. <laughs> and it turns out they found in, 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 the, in the bedroom he was staying, in the closet in the bedroom he was staying, a, a, a whole puzzle. He was trying to put the pu- a new puzzle together in his bedroom closet. In all our interactions, friends, we're either adding or subtracting a piece to someone's wholeness, to to someone's sense of wholeness in life. Now, I never say I'm trying to subtract from someone's sense of wholeness, but like, like this nephew, each time I use the interaction to add to my sense of well-being, my sense of wholeness, I'm unwittingly subtracting it from another's. Love seeks to integrate. Evil disintegrates. That's the connection. So so why do I go with this definition of good and evil? Well, I I do it because of context. I always tell when we read the Bible, we should read up and read down. So what comes before this passage is is verses 3 through 8. Paul has just talked about the gifts of the Spirit given to each follower. Like, like puzzle pieces, we can use our gifts of the Spirit to add to someone's life, the use of which is meant to be motivated by love, to help restore others, to, to help all of God's family towards wholeness together. And so we see that here in Romans 12, but Paul talks about gifts in at least two other places. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about gifts in chapter 12, and he immediately follows that up with the Bible's most famous passage about love. 1 Corinthians 13, it will be probably read here today at a wedding. It's going to happen later today. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about gifts, and he talks about using them to make the body of Christ more whole and mature, and then he immediately in chapter 5 talks again about love. The reason Paul establishes this, this consistent pattern is that he's aware that in our interactions, we use individual strengths and gifts to either add to someone's wholeness or to subtract from them, right? So in the example with my friend Joe, I use my gifts of, of, of words and my word gifts and a text message to, to add to my sense of self, to subtract to his sense of self, or to subtract from his sense of wholeness. Now, thankfully, that story ends good. You know, that I, I later phoned him. We had a great conversation. And I, I really did genuinely say, man, you've done an awesome job this year. He actually ended up opening up about therapy in his life, how it saved his marriage and his sense of self. And I ended up able to use words genuinely to add to a sense of wholeness, right? But that's how we often, we, we use our strengths like a piece of a puzzle, right? We can add to someone's sense of wholeness, we can take it away. And that's the genuine test of love as I interact with others. Am I adding a piece? Am I taking away a piece to their sense of wholeness? That makes sense? 
Now, as we graduate and test our sense of love, how do we begin to actually put love into practice? This is love 2.0, and that's loving God's family. We love God's family. One of the reasons it's especially vital to get new or young followers of Jesus connected with the family of God is because there's a good chance, there's a good chance they didn't grow up in a family that, that taught them and showed them how to love. Um, the world's uh, preeminent Christian sociologist, a man named George Barna, uh, him and his team about 18 months ago finished a, a years-long survey of millennials, a millennial generation, America's largest generation, by the way, basically people in their, right now in their 20s and 30s. A majority of millennials admit to often feeling anxious, depressed, or unsafe. Anxious, depressed, and or unsafe. And if you look a little deeper to see the big reason why, more than 20 million millennials were raised in broken families. Now, look, we're all messed up, we're all broken in different ways. That is not a condemnation on broken families. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that oftentimes folks who've grown up in those contexts, it's hard for them to get a, a complete sense of love, a full sense of how to love, what love is. And so it's so good then that, that Paul says that the best place for many people to learn how to love is in the context, in the midst of God's family. Paul acknowledges this here. He, said, he says in verse 10, love one another with a brotherly affection. And you can't tell from our English translation, but Paul uses the prefix for brotherly or family twice here in this verse. The better way of translating it might be uh, brotherly devote yourself with brotherly love. Brotherly devote yourself with brotherly love. And he follows this saying up by saying outdo one another. In that family context, outdo one another in showing honor. Now the word translated outdo isn't used anywhere else here in the Bible. It suggests, the nuance of it suggests um, showing someone the way to be a pioneer or a pace setter in showing honor. You know what a pace setter is, right? Someone you can see ahead of you who encourages you to follow behind them, right? Who, who sets the pace. Um, you know, it's interesting to me that some of those successful athletes are often younger siblings. If you're an older sibling, I'm sorry to say that, okay? You're, but, but younger siblings are often some of the most successful athletes in life. So, um, you follow this, uh, Michael Jordan, famous younger brother, right? He, he idolized his brother Larry, who he always said was better at him than basketball. Turns out, Michael was better, right? Like, history has shown that, all right? But I, I follow the career of these guys, named, uh, the May brothers, a little bit. Uh, Luke May is the eldest. He's not the best athlete, but he set the pace for his other brothers. He won a national championship in 2017, with the University of North Carolina basketball team. Go Tar Heels. All right, um, his next older brother, his next, his next oldest brother, uh, won a national championship in baseball at the University of Florida, right? Incredible. All right, so imagine this younger brother growing up with these two or three older brothers, whoever they are, right? The youngest is Drake. As a freshman, he was a starting quarterback at the University of North Carolina, and this kid is a lock to be a top five NFL draft pick next year, like a lock. He might be the first, at worst, second NFL draft pick next year. He's better, in other words, than them all. And if you ask him why, you could probably figure it out if you've ever played sports before. 
If you ask him why, it's because of all the battles he went through, right, with his older brothers. He's great because he went through all these battles with the older brothers and he saw their example of, of, of working hard, of setting the pace before them. And if you ask the eldest brother, Luke, about his youngest brother, May, he, he, I've heard him say, he said, I want him to succeed more than me. I want him to do better and succeed beyond everything I've accomplished, as a young older brother should say. Friends, be a pace setter. Be a pace setting older brother or sister or follow behind one. Be a pace setting older brother or sister or follow behind one. I've, I've had the privilege of getting to invest um, in other followers of Jesus, reading the Bible with them, encouraging with them, praying with them, showing honor to them and being an example of showing honor to them in their life. And I've done it all very imperfectly, no doubt about it. But there's little in life more satisfying than blazing a trail for another person that they then outpace you on. Blaze that trail and watch them run past you. That is such a privilege and honor in life. And we get to be a part of that as the family of God. Now, the family of God is also the best venue in which to partner with someone. That's probably a better translation for verse 13, which should be partner with the needs of the saints and seek opportunities to show others God's welcome, a.k.a. hospitality. And I want to commend you guys, commend all of you as a church for this, for being a church that doesn't just wait for opportunities to show God's welcome, but seeks them out. I mean, I've observed in this church, just for example, kind of random examples, I've seen an older couple seek out a woman who, who they heard her, her water was out at her place. She said, hey, come over to our house and take a shower. And if you want, we have an extra bed. You can sleep at our place tonight if you like. Out of their way to show God's welcome to someone, right? I, I've, I've gotten to be a part of a group of guys to offer transportation to and from medical procedures from another brother in Christ. I've... The agape women in our church, all right, who constantly seek out opportunities to remind uh, shut-ins, the infirm, people who are stuck in their home, of God's welcome towards them in their life, reminding them that God loves them, reminding them that God welcomes them and cares for them. It's an awesome example. The family of God is the perfect place to begin learning how to do these things, to show honor, to come alongside someone and partner with them to seek out opportunities to, to, to show them God's welcome because with us, you're always free to love imperfectly. With us, you're always free to just love imperfectly. You, you can step on people's toes. You can totally miss social and cultural cues <laughs> that we should probably get. You can even forget to occasionally show up and we're still gonna love you. We're still gonna care for you. We're still gonna welcome you back. That's what it means to be part of a family of God. And that's why I think Paul says, start here. Like, like, get going here in terms of practicing love. But then you get to move on. As you grow in love, love 3.0, which is loving across borders, love across borders, loving beyond borders that are normally comfortable for us. Now, even in the family of God, things can get uncomfortable, right? But then there's another level to that where things get even more uncomfortable. As we grow in Jesus' love, there are three types of uncomfortable borders across which Paul says we should love. And the first is in verse 15, border one, which is persons feeling emotions that you are not. Maybe you've never thought of the verse in this way, but I want to put it this way. Persons feeling emotions that you are not. Verse 15 says to rejoice with those who rejoice 
and weep with those who weep. And the implication is you are not currently rejoicing. You are not currently weeping as someone else weeps. I once uh, was listening to this, this rabbi, uh, Elliot Kukla, share about a woman in his congregation who had a brain injury, and she would often uh, fall to the floor. Just She had this injury, and it, it, was, it was something that couldn't be prevented, so she would sometimes fall. And every time she'd fall, people around her would immediately rush you know, to kind of help her get back on her feet, but, but usually before she was ready to get up. She explained to her rabbi, quote, I, I think people rush to help me because they are so uncomfortable with seeing an adult lying on the floor. But what I really need is for someone to get down on the ground with me. And I think to cross over an emotional border is a decision. It's a decision to move with empathy just to someone in pain is first a decision, right? Because it's far more convenient to help someone up to me, right, uh, than it is to go down to them, to lie on the ground with them. Our natural inclination is we don't want to feel what they feel. We want them to feel what we feel, right? And so we don't want to go there. And that's why I say it's a decision. Loving across borders doesn't necessarily mean crying with someone, but it doesn't mean choosing to sit with someone as they cry, as they weep, right? That's the decision. You don't have to manufacture the tears, but you, you get with someone who's experiencing that, and you go to them. That's the border I'm talking about. Or the opposite, rejoicing with those who rejoice. Love can also be showing up to, a, showing up to the party when you feel down. Verbally congratulating someone when you don't feel like they deserve it, <laughs> right? You just get it out of your mouth. It's a decision. The second border Paul mentions in our passage is, is towards persons who are socially challenged, loving persons who are socially challenged. Look at verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, there's a, a woman in our church who's connected professionally to a 15-year-old mother of a child just turned one. And knowing that the mother had little support, the woman wondered, what, what, what if some people in our church would throw this child a birthday party? Okay? Kind of, kind of an interesting idea. It's a great idea. So she contacted my wife, Katie, who rallied some people to get buy her gifts and throw her a party. No judgment, no future expectations, no strings attached. Let's just throw this one-year-old a party. And this happened last Sunday. And you can imagine the number of, of side-eye, um, side-eyes and judgments a teen mom would receive. But then to have her child celebrated in that moment, how that adds a piece of wholeness to her life that she may not experience otherwise. Wonderful. And by the way, but let me say this, that's an obvious opportunity, right? And I'm so glad took advantage of that, but that's an obvious opportunity. What about the types of people you would consider uh, challenging socially? Persons who are simply hard to relate to, right? Maybe they're shy, a little bit awkward. Some people who take, come on too strong. Yeah, I know some people like that. People who exclusively talk about themselves without letting you talk about yourself <laughs> or get a word in. Or what about those with whom you don't necessarily relate? have things in common, or you don't necessarily agree about stuff. 
lesser stuff than Jesus. As we're going to see next week in chapter 14 of Romans, the church in Rome had a couple of cliques, and each thought, ironically, that the other one was the lowly one. Each clique in the church thought they were wise in their own sight. Right? I think one of the best ways to cross that border is to begin, is to approach that person with humility and honor. Sorry, uh, with honesty and humility. Just to be honest about it and humble about it. I realize I haven't really talked to you much because I just assume we're too different. And that's on me. Like, I would love to hear a little bit of your story. Like, just be honest and humble and say, hey, you know, I I never really talked to you because I just never thought we had a lot in common. I thought we were too different. Admit you're wrong. Ask about their story. And I bet by doing so, you're going to add a piece of wholeness to their life. The third and hardest border to cross, though, with love, is persons who do evil to you. Persons who do evil to you. I want you to use a quick story that I think will help us apply what Paul's saying, how we should love those who do evil to us, apply how we should love to do towards those who do us evil. Um, My youngest son had the opportunity to go to his very first concert a few weeks ago. And so I took him and his friend to the UC Theater down in Berkeley and to see this band called The Sacred Souls. These Sacred Souls that, I, I gotta tell you, you turn on music from a teenager and they sound like The Temptations, um, and it, or The Four Tops. It, it's a shock, by the way, but apparently Neo Soul is back in. I'm, and I'm telling you guys, at this concert, it was almost exclusively 20-year-olds listening to something that sounded like The Temptations. It'll blow your mind. I mean, it's crazy. All right, but anyway, so we go to this concert, and, and I know ahead of time it's standing room only, and my entire goal is to find something to lean against. All right, I get there, and I, and I by the way, take a moment of silence because I've become that father, all right? Um, it's a moment of silence for me, if you don't mind. I never thought I'd get to this age where I'd become this kind of father, but here I was, one of these dads who gives their, their, their children permission to run off and find me later, if not because of my lack of coolness, just because of my physical grouchiness. Like, I just want to lean against this wall. Go somewhere else. <laughs> All right, that's a side note. I just wanted to share that. So I, I, I have my own physical issues. My son had a, has a, um, a bone bruise on his knee, and he was, you know, he's not supposed to run. He's feeling kind of gimpy. And so he talked to this usher, which I'm proud of him. This is a very Oschlager thing to do. Uh, he talked to this usher into giving us uh, ADA seats if they went unused, American Disability Act seats, if, if they went unused, right, if no one was using them. And so they did. You know, uh, my son's very charming. He did a great job. Um, so we get to sit in these seats. Don't judge us for that, all right? All right, anyway. <laughs> so we sit down, and behind me, uh, standing, is this, uh, you know, quite inebriated couple, all right? There was, a, there was an opening act, and then at this point, they're quite they're inebriated. It, it, a squealer and a whooper. I mean, she's a squealer. She is squealing almost, at, um, you know, every new song that comes up frequently, he is whoop, whooping like that. I mean, over and over again. Sorry if you're listening to this on a podcast. Um, I mean, squealing to low-key 60s-type, you know, Temptations music, right? I mean, very... Love songs here. Now, I've got a little bit of tinnitus from the same, by the way, from the same son who would often yell things in my ear. Um, 
I have a little bit of hearing loss uh, in, in my right ear where the squeals were directing. And by the way, this couple could tell I was getting bothered, right? And, as, and they could tell I was getting bothered. I was like, oh, man. They got louder. And they were like, oh, we're going to make this louder. Back to our passage, right? Verse 17. I, I, and by the way, they're all they starting to talk about me. I mean, they're like, like this guy, look, this guy, we're, this, we're at a concert. He's clearly by. All right, whatever. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Loving across borders is more than just avoiding retaliation. We are called to give thought to what an evil person, an evil-doing person would consider honorable in their eyes. Now, what, in other words, someone's doing evil, what's my response of love? Not just not retaliating, asking the question, what would be honorable in their eyes for me to do in this situation? Right? Whether it's uh, admitting I'm wrong, whether it's um, uh, offering them restitution for something, right? Uh, you know, getting out of the situation completely. Back to the concert, I genuinely tried to think about what would elevate this person's, uh, these person's rights and agency. So I said, hey, look, hey guys, excuse me. I humbly went to them and said, you have every right to scream, to yell, you're at a concert. I'm wondering if you'd do me the favor of just, just lowering the, maybe lowering the pitch a little bit, would that be okay? You know, the woman said, you know, you want me to stop, stop yelling at all? No, 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 don't yell at all. But you know how people do, like they, so she starts getting mad and the guy said, man, you should have brought earplugs. I was like, you know, so I admitted in that moment, you know what? You're right. I should have. And that's my bad. And I know that I'm totally asking a favor in the situation. It's my fault. I should have brought earplugs. Considering what another person would find honorable, give thought to what might be honorable in their sight as you experiencing a wrong done to you. Now, verse 20. Let's move on here. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, there's a lot of debate about this verse, what this, this phrase means. You know, if you, if you love someone, if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Uh, if he's hungry, what does it mean, Do burning, heap burning coals on his head? I believe what Paul is doing is he's referencing an ancient Near East reconciliation rit, uh, ritual uh, among nomadic people. Like Paul lived in a place, around a place where lots of nomadic people. Coals of fire would be a very valuable commodity for desert people, where, where wood for cooking and heating was scarce. So coals of fire was actually a good thing. And by heaping coals of fire into the pot of the one you've wronged for them to carry back to their camp on their head, you demonstrate you're, you're sorry for hurting them. You're, you're providing them a kind of restitution and saying, you know, I'm sorry. I'm gonna, I want to give you a gift for you to be able to use and carry back to the ones you love. Paul is turning this ancient Near East tradition on its head. The tradition said, offer a gift in response for being wrong. Paul says, offer a gift in response to being wronged. Like you're being wronged, offer a gift to that person. Offer something that would be valuable for them, that would actually help them, that would surprise them with love. That's loving across borders. And this is where I failed at the concert, by the way. I debated this for a long time, doing the radical thing and offering the couple behind me my seats. I really did. I was about to say, you know what? 
But, and partly, I have to admit, my first strategy of being humble and asking forgiveness and sad, that, that didn't work. <laughs> it got worse. But I debated saying, hey, guys, just take my seats. This would have been, I think, the equivalent of giving them the burning coal, something helpful to them, something that would be uh, appreciated by them and useful for them. But I didn't. Because I didn't do that, verse 21 happened to me. Let's look at that together. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Doing a radical good doesn't overcome evil in another person. That's not what Paul promises here. What he promises, good overcomes the threat of evil in me. The threat of evil to me. Evil left untouched by love threatens to fracture me to disintegrate me, to make me less whole. We often read this verse as thinking, oh, we're going to overcome the world by doing good. Actually, we're just overcoming ourselves and overcoming the threat of evil in us by doing good. Sure enough, after the concert, because I didn't do this radical act of good, I started replaying the incident to my son and to his friend. You know, I was concerned for my own appearance defending myself. I left evil untouched by love, and so it left a kind of bitterness in me. And that's why partly I'm telling you the story today, because of therapy, right? But that's our message in a nutshell this morning. All these levels of love, our message in a nutshell is this. Aim to add a peace to another person's life. Aim to add a peace to another person's wholeness. That is love. Aim to add a piece of wholeness to another person's life. Just one piece of wholeness. That is love. At whatever level of love you find yourself, if you can add a piece of wholeness to them, that's really loving them. So if you're in a place where you feel challenged to love, just here in God's family, look to Jesus. And by the way, I haven't given you, I've told you how to love. I haven't given you the power to love. Look to Jesus who endured from all his friends all kinds of ill-timed behavior, ill-conceived Ill comments, and honored them instead. I have no longer called you servants, but I have called you friends. If you're in a place where God's challenged you to love across borders, look to Jesus who, who endured being slapped, scourged, slandered, and instead pronounced forgiveness towards those who did him evil and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If you're in a place where you just, you just need to learn love or relearn love, genuine love again, that's okay. Let's look to Jesus together. On, on Sundays, every Wednesday nights, waiting rooms, reminding each other that he willingly, voluntarily subtracted from his own wholeness, his own life, leaving his father's side, losing his friends, enduring the cross in order to add wholeness to yours. Let's pray. Father, help us look to your son, Jesus, for the power to love, to add a piece of wholeness to another's life, to add a piece of that puzzle to theirs in every interaction, that that would be our aim, not to take, not to add to our own wholeness, and unwittingly subtract from theirs. But think, how can I use my strengths, my gifts in this interaction to add a little to another's life? And we thank you, Jesus, that you subtracted from your life to add wholeness to ours so that one day we might be complete 
and pure and holy in the Father's sight. We thank you and we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.